0: Before we begin this week's episode, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to curated content and sharing it with others. A lot of work goes into this program, and it means a lot to know that you're enjoying it. And if you've been enjoying the show, why not email us with one or two of your favorite segments? We're working on a sampler to let new listeners know what the show is all about. Finally, I'd like to thank you for your patience with this week's episode. There were some real-life challenges in the past few days, and I sincerely apologize for the delay. And now, on with the program. Welcome to Curated Content. Act 1. For my brother, my cousins, and I, summers meant visiting my grandparents' place near a lake in northeastern Oklahoma. We learned to swim, fish, and ski in a cove in the foothills of the Ozarks, largely away from the rest of the world. It was idyllic in many ways, though we would occasionally invite in little snippets of modernity, with none more vital than the sounds coming through the tape deck. Dad's old Mac Davis albums, and a tape that had Kenny Rogers' greatest hits dubbed on one side and a Sheena Easton album on the other, weren't enough to keep us entertained forever. So a rotation of tapes that had either been evicted from our home collection, recorded for the purpose of leaving at the lake, or acquired at gas stations or Walmart, became the listening library of choice during those summer days. That is, unless my grandfather had command of the stereo, in which case, we listened to an 8-track of Hawaiian music, probably released sometime in the mid-70s. At some point, sometime in the late 1990s, we wound up with a cassette tape, Called Drew's Famous Party Music, and I have no idea who purchased it to begin with. When you looked at the titles on the J card, you saw songs familiar enough. Songs like Let's Twist Again, Shout, and uh, It's Raining Men. However, none of the artists' names were anywhere to be seen on the label. Drew's famous party music, which was anything but famous to us, was a cassette of sound-alike covers. A brief aside, in what world would anybody want to hear a singer other than Laura Branigan singing Gloria? It turns out that the existence of Drew's famous party music came down to something called licensing. The short, short, very short, not at all legally advisable explanation of it all is this. If you want to use a song for any purpose, be it radio, film, television, or what have you, you've got to make sure that the right people are compensated. Even if it's the robot animals at Chuck E. Cheese singing the songs, somebody's got to get paid in full. There are two entities who need that payment, the writers who get paid through the publisher and the owners of the actual recording. If I want to use, say, Surf and Safari by the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson is going to get his cut as songwriter. The Capitol Records is going to get paid as the owners of the actual recording. It all gets a little confusing after a while. By establishing their own house band, the Hit Crew, Drew's Entertainment took the original recording out of the picture and therefore cut their costs. It's the same thing that Muzak did, though the Hit Crew takes the act dangerously deeper into the uncanny valley. When a Hit Crew version of, say, Every Rose Has Its Thorn sneaks into the film 500 Days of Summer. It doesn't jump out immediately as a re recording or cover. It's a little discomforting, though. To feel like a song that should be familiar is something that isn't. The company's list of placement is extensive and bizarre. The hit crew has been deployed to provide the version of Right Said Fred's I'm Too Sexy, Heard in Bride Wars, and covers of Wannabe and Car Wash for Ellen DeGeneres' TV programs. They even performed The Hamster Dance for NBC's Parenthood. The hit crew's resume includes television, film, and now video games. If you've played Just Dance... You've heard them. Britney Spears' Toxic, Madonna's Holiday, I Need Cimozi's, Here Comes the Hot Stepper. They were all given the Drew's hit crew treatment. Drew's famous party music and the company's other line, DJ's Choice, merged into a single body called Drew's Entertainment, and their current iteration seems focused mostly on this licensing work. Their website is extensively focused on this very aspect, with very few nods to their recorded work, although they do encourage visitors to purchase CDs at Party City and Walmart, and touting that digital versions are available through iTunes and can be streamed on Spotify. If there's, say, a Taylor Swift song that you've been dying to hear, chances are, if you turn to Spotify, it's the hit crew that scratches that itch sometimes you just can't believe your own ears. Act Two. It's 1984. You've parked yourself on the couch for afternoon cartoons. You have a fruit roll-up in your hand. And you're ready to watch the saga of two warring factions of space robots capable of disguising themselves as vehicles, with Earth in the balance. You think you're watching Transformers? Maybe. It's just as likely that you're settling in for the challenge of the GoBots. In the early 1980s, the FCC had changed its rules regarding marketing in children's programs, allowing toy manufacturers to essentially create half-hour commercials for action figures and dolls. Programs popped up for GI Joe, My Little Pony, and many more. In September of 1984, Television saw the premiere of two very similar toy-based series, each based around what could almost be the exact same premise. Two groups of space robots fight on Earth. One is good, one bad. All can change into vehicles. Yes, there are toys to buy. Transformers was a part of a three-part marketing plan. Toy manufacturer Hasbro had licensed a line of Japanese toys that changed from large robots into cars, trucks, and airplanes. And rather than remain faithful to the original characters and storylines, they decided to create their own mythology for the characters. To that end, a comic book line and cartoon Both provided by Marvel Entertainment would round out the launch. Jim Shooter, Marvel's controversial editor in chief, who'd successfully spearheaded the Secret Wars comic book crossover and toy campaign, and Denny O'Neill, a respected writer who would go on to serve as the editor of DC Comics' Batman line during the 1990s, were largely responsible for the world building in the comics, which was brought over into the cartoon. Transformers would be a massive hit, spawning four seasons and 98 episodes in its initial run, remaining on the market until 1987. It even spawned a feature film, which would go on to be Orson Welles' last credited film appearance. The story of the GoBots is nowhere near as glamorous. As Marvel's animation department readied Transformers a competitor emerged from another studio and manufacturer. Hanna-Barbera, the long-running animation house that was home to Yogi Bear and Scooby-Doo and Jabberjaw and Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels, had spent the late 70s and early 80s attempting to branch into less comedic, more action-based cartoons, beginning with a wave of programs that included the Alex Toth-designed Space Ghost, and Blue Falcon, though there was still a house style detectable in that animation. The studio partnered with Tonka, the toy company known primarily for its line of durable toy trucks found in sandboxes across the country to produce its own fighting robot series. In truth, there is very little to distinguish the premise of one show from the other. In fact, voice talent from one program would regularly turn up on the other. Frank Welker, the Transformers' Starscream, was also a player on GoBots, as was Peter Cullen, the voice of the Autobots' leader Optimus Prime. However, the Hasbro-Marvel Alliance seemed more prepared to lay claim to the market, with a broader media push and generally better quality toys, favoring die-cast bodies over plastic. Transformers produced seasons of episodes, while GoBots stuck to a sneaky formula popular among syndicated children's programming. If a show produced roughly 60 episodes, it could run in perpetuity, with a very low likelihood of viewers ever seeing too many repeats in too close a succession. By 1986, the challenge of the GoBots had been met and defeated by the Transformers, who claimed a monopoly on the robots that turn into cars market. It's amusing to note that in the year after the Transformers final season aired, a robot that turns into a thing toy was a plot point in Big, the Oscar-nominated comedy in which Tom Hanks plays a preteen who turns into a 30-year-old. Hanks is tasked with analyzing a prototype for a toy that turns into a skyscraper, which he proclaims to be no fun. It seems that no matter the story, and no matter how big, there's always more than meets the eye. Act three. Each new television season, there's plenty of ink spilled about Saturday Night Live, NBC's sketch comedy series, that started out mocking the establishment, only to find itself now in its fifth decade as much a part of the establishment as the nightly news. It's not like SNL invented sketch comedy on television. That's been around practically since the beginning. But the show became an institution, and when anything is institutionalized... It trades in its outsider cool for that status. It settles into a formula, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, as with anything else, when a formula works in one place, there are going to be attempts to replicate it elsewhere. It's not my intention to provide a thorough overview of this sort of television program. Hours could be spent delving into SCTV, or Fridays, or Kids in the Hall... Rather, I find myself thinking about a handful of mid-1990s sketch shows, airing on network television, that tried to in some way take a shot at the SNL sketch throne. Our story starts with a show that was originally developed for NBC, the home of Saturday Night Live. Producer David Merkin had a background in comedy and a slate of admirable credits, beginning with work on stalwart series like Three's Company and New Heart, before gravitating toward more adventurous fare like Showtime's It's Gary Shandling's Show, which led to a co-creating credit on HBO's Larry Sanders' show. In 1992, the Fox network was still thought of as a hipper, irreverent upstart, taking a run against the more staid establishment channels. They were riding a commercial wave that was powered by hits like The Simpsons, The X-Files, and Beverly Hills 90210. Shows whose audience skewed younger. The network had worked with Merkin before. He was part of the creative team that produced the cult classic Get a Life, which starred Chris Elliott, and had written for The Simpsons. He's got a writing credit on Deep Space Homer. Later on, he would take a showrunner credit for that show during its fifth and sixth seasons. When NBC passed on a sketch comedy show created by Merkin and his then-partner, comedian Julie Brown, not the downtown Julie Brown of MTV fame, Fox agreed to take it to production and on September 19, 1992, The Edge premiered on the network in primetime. Looking back, The Edge featured an astonishing number of performers and creators who would be influential in the decade going forward. True, at the time of its launch, the biggest star in the ensemble may have been Wayne Knight, who is best known as Newman from Seinfeld. But the regular players also included Jill Talley and Tom Kenny, both staples of a vibrant Los Angeles comedy scene and future contributors to Mr. Show. You would also recognize Kenny as the voice of none other than SpongeBob SquarePants. The Edge also featured writing by Charlie Kaufman, who would earn acclaim as the writer of Being John Malkovich and Adaptation, and a roster of regular guests that included Alan Ruck, that's Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and future Bridesmaids director Paul Feig. And did I mention that The Edge also featured Jennifer Aniston as a series regular? The show became embroiled in an intranetwork feud with Aaron Spelling after airing a sketch that mocked 90210, his hit teen soap opera, and Merkin left the show, reportedly as a result of the Spelling feud. Merkin's position was that he left in a budget dispute, though he did return to produce the series' final episode, a clip show that closed out the run in the spring of 1993. 20 episodes filmed, 18 aired, shuffled into the mists of time. Knight would go on to co-star in Jurassic Park, one of the highest-grossing films of all time, before taking a series' regular role on NBC's Third Rock from the Sun. Meanwhile, Aniston was offered a cast spot doing sketch comedy on none other than Saturday Night Live. She turned down that offer in order to take a role in the pilot episode for an ensemble comedy called Friends. I hear that worked out for her. Within the next couple of years, Fox would attempt a couple of other would-be heirs to the throne, achieving their most notable commercial success with Mad TV, a program that never really lived up to the sum of creative talent present in its writer's room and on the stage. But still managed to carve out a lengthy run as an SNL alternative. During a break in Mad TV's schedule, the network attempted to launch a second sketch program called Saturday Night Special. Fox had made a deal with Roseanne Barr, whose success in the world of television comedy came largely through her long running ABC sitcom, Roseanne which was entering its ninth and final season in 1996. Barr had hosted SNL and came away with a sour impression of the show, telling the Los Angeles Times that she felt like it was ready to fall. This was as the show came to the close of the early to mid-90s Chris Farley, Adam Sandler era, just before the majority of the cast would be replaced, And Barr approached Fox about producing an SNL competitor that she felt could be more intelligent and more well rounded than the then three decades old SNL. Fox aired six episodes of the Barr produced Saturday Night Special, and though the cast included Jennifer Coolidge, Kathy Griffin, and Laura Keitlinger, the comedy wasn't exactly revolutionary. What stands out in my memory, though, was the show's almost impeccable list of musical guests circa 1996, a far more forward-thinking roster on average than SNL's in the same season. For any missteps, Coolio, say, or Kiss during their reunion, hey, look, we're back in the makeup phase, there are future classic performances by Tupac Shakur, and Ice Tea, D'Angelo, Garbage, and Radiohead, who promoted the Benz with a performance of Bones that has stuck with me for 20 years. Saturday Night Special folded that spring. Even though Mad TV would run for years after, it seemed as though the fever of sketch shows had broken by the end of the 90s. With the advent of YouTube and other streaming options, the likelihood of an outright challenge from any of NBC's traditional broadcast competitors seems dim to be generous. But in some alternate universe, we're busy watching the 21st season of Saturday Night Special with special guest host Yasmeen Bleeth. Today's episode was written, produced, recorded, and edited by Michael Ross, whom you are listening to now. He also performed our interstitial music. Find new episodes of curated content every week at iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us. Your feedback is valuable, and your ratings help others find us. Visit our website at modernsuburbanite.com modsub where you'll find archived shows, show notes, and information about other projects. You can also choose to support curated content through our donor portal. Every little bit helps. Learn more at the website. Connect with curated content on Twitter, where we are at ContentShow. or reach us through email. Our address is curatedc at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next time for more dives into half-remembered material and the unexpected threads running through our brain's encoding. This concludes our visit to the mixed-up files deep in the memory banks. Be well and stay curious.